0: All right. Well, I, you know, I, we, we love our children around here. It's always a delight to uh, have that little time with them, and I'm glad you get to listen in on that. And if you have children here, I want you to know that even with our limited facilities, we care deeply about them, and we're doing our very best as a church to minister God's grace to them. As you turn to James chapter 1, uh, I want to mention something to you. Um, we are putting... Uh, a great emphasis on an idea that i think is incredibly important to us as a church given the fact that we don't have the facility and the ability to be together all together more than one time a week and as you know we're praying for god to uh, make possible uh, a facility for us but until then we are graciously content and and gloriously thankful to him for what he has provided for us But the time that we're together on Sunday morning is essential because it's the only time that we're all together. So I'm asking, and our deacons and our elders are asking, that you consider Sunday morning one big time frame, that you come at 9 and you stay all the way through 12. And we, to help you do that, have uh, started a new series of things that we're doing with our equip hour, and they have been amazingly well received i I continually hear some great things about the new equip hour that we've done and there's more coming as we uh, improve that over time but let me just encourage you to spend your morning with us think of sunday morning as coming from nine to noon and spending that three hours together around the word and then in that second portion being equipped and uh, you can go on our website you'll see all the different options that are there we have um Garrett Martin, who is teaching one of the options uh, entitled Spiritual Habits, and I really want to encourage you to think about jumping into that class over the next this week and next week especially because the habit that they are going to be talking about is one that I have almost never heard, preached on, or taught on, or encountered. Garrett has been spending time helping us learn how to memorize the Scripture. That's an important spiritual habit. But he's going to be talking about the important habit of fasting, hungering after God, hungering for God, hungering because of God. And so if you've never experienced that, if you've never done that in your life, if you've never heard any teaching on that, if you thought, you know, I've, that's, that's something I've just never heard of, I really would be interested in that, let me encourage you to jump into that equip hour in the next week or two uh, and, uh, and get some good teaching on that. It's an incredible discipline and habit that can actually help us as we grow in grace. All right, the book of James chapter one, and as Pastor Mike mentioned, uh, we are picking up our series where we left off, and we are beginning uh, a new section in chapter one, beginning in verse 13 and going all the way through verse 18, and as we look at this section if James were here with us this morning, I think he would warn us that this is a particularly tricky part of the trail to navigate. And very early on in the journey, this comes up. So remember our, our, our sort of our analogy for James is we're on a hike with James. We're on a trail. We're on a journey. We're not on a trip. We're on a journey, and there are things that James is going to intentionally build into the journey along the way to to kind of keep us on track, but more than just keeping us on track, he has a very big objective, And, and he's designed things into the journey, and so when you hit a part of the journey that is hard, it's hard intentionally. It's sort of like some of the books in the Bible that are designed by the author to kind of help you Discover something. Like like the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, is a book about wisdom. And the thing you know about wisdom is that it, it's, it's not easy to find. And so Ecclesiastes is intentionally designed by Solomon to be difficult. And you have to work hard. You have to hunt to find the wisdom. So there are things like that in James. James is going to design the book in a way that as you read through the book, and you think through carefully, you're going to hit things at certain points along the trail, and initially you're going to go, I'm not sure why this is here. And then sometimes you're going to hit things, and you're going to say, this is a really hard part of the trail to navigate, and this is the section we're in. It's a hard part of the trail to navigate, but James is doing this intentionally because this part of the trail is essential to cultivate a living faith that you're going to display to a dying world. That's the theme of James, putting your faith to work. And how do you put your faith to work? You display it to the world. And so what kind of a faith do you want to display to the world? What kind of a faith is going to make an impact? What kind of a faith is going to make a difference in a dying world? And the answer to that for James is very simple. It is a living faith. And he's already told us what that looks like. And he's going to tell us again and again and again that a living faith is marked by three things. You remember what the three things were? We've said them repeatedly together. A living faith is wholehearted. It is single-focused, and it is fully trusting. A living faith is wholehearted. It is single-focused. James is going to talk about double-mindedness double-souledness, double-heartedness. A living faith is not like that. A living faith is wholehearted, it's single-focused, and it is fully trusting. Can we say that together? I'd like us to just make sure we have that in our minds. So let's say it this way. A living faith for a dying world is a faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. All right, so As we started reading James, and he's talking about cultivating this kind of a faith, he immediately introduces one of the ways in which God cultivates that in your life and in my life, and it is through trials. This is a magnificent tool that God uses not just to cultivate the faith that he is looking for, but to display it. And the thing that is required for that to work, if a trial is going to produce what God intends for it to produce in your life and in mine, a single, a wholehearted, single focused, truly trusting, fully trusting faith, if that's really going to be the outcome of the trial, then what is required in the middle of the trial? And James says, I'm going to give it to you in one word, and it's the word endurance. There is a great reward at the end of the trial for those who endure. In verse 12, they get a crown, and the crown is described as the crown of life. But before you get to the crown, you have to endure, and James is going to let you know that enduring a trial requires two things. Number one, it requires a certain kind of wisdom. And James is going to tell you about that wisdom up in verse 4, or verse 5, rather. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Now, he's going to introduce wisdom to you here. And if you remember, wisdom in James is not just good sense. It's not just the idea of, you know, I'm trying to decide, do I need to go here? Do I need to go there? And I need wisdom about that. We do need wisdom, and the Bible talks about that, but that's really not the point that James is making when he says if you lack wisdom, ask God. He's actually talking about a specific wisdom that came down from heaven, and it does things. In chapter 3, he's going he's to actually call it wisdom from above. And we noted as we went through that portion of Scripture that when James is talking about wisdom, he is talking about a particular body of wisdom that God gave to his people in contrast to all of the other wisdoms of the nations. So if you go back to the Old Testament, God's nation, Israel, had a wisdom. And it was different than the wisdom of the Egyptians. It was different than the wisdom of the Canaanites. It was different and the wisdom of the Babylonians it was a unique wisdom and the wisdom that God had given to Israel was located in a book called the Torah and that Torah is your old testament and James is adding this into the mix he's saying there is a wisdom that God has given you and if you need help in navigating a trial You need to go to that wisdom as opposed to all of the other wisdoms around you. It's the Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk according to the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't sit in the seat of scornful. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. But his delight is in this other wisdom, in the law of the Lord. And so that's what James is talking about. If you're going to navigate a trial and you're going to endure, you need to go to the right wisdom. You need to go to God's wisdom. And then the second thing you need is you need to go to the right place, but you need to go in the right way. And the way you get wisdom from that source is you have to come with a heart that is not divided. You have to come in faith, not doubting. And the idea there is not limping between two things. You can't come to God and say, listen, I want to come to your word, and I want to check out what it says, and then I'm going to go to the other wisdoms, and I'm going to check out what they say, and then I'm going to decide which makes better sense. You say, well, who in the world would do that? Israel did that throughout the Old Testament. Remember this? God said, I'm going to give you rain, And I'm going to be the one that sends rain. And to get rain in the book of Leviticus, this is how you get it. You ask me. And there was a period of time during Elijah's ministry where God didn't send rain for three and a half years. And you know why he didn't send rain. And the people were dying. I mean, literally, the economy was in shambles. Famine was rampant. Death was everywhere. And these people who were desperate for rain had been introduced to another wisdom. A princess named Jezebel brought another wisdom to Israel and said, listen, I have another way for you to get rain. There's another source of rain, and his name is Baal, Baal. And there are 400 priests and, I'm sorry, 400 uh, prophets and 450 priests, and they can teach you this wisdom. And Israel was now caught in the middle. Do we go back to our wisdom that God gave us to get rain, or do we go to this new wisdom to get rain? And that's what was going on when Elijah stood on the mountain and says, how long are you going to limp between these two wisdoms? And you say, well, that would never happen to us. It happens to us all the time. And so that's why James talks this way. If you are going to navigate a trial and you're going to endure that trial, then you're going to need endurance, and endurance requires two things. You have to go to the right wisdom, and you have to go in the right way. You have to go with an undivided heart. You have to go with a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. You see how James introduces that concept? All right, so that's what happened And that's what James has introduced you to in the first 12 verses. But in verse 13, there is something new that comes in. And he's going to introduce an important part of the journey that you need to know about because this is a real and present danger to the cultivation of a living faith. It is going to come at wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith, in ways that you don't anticipate. And here's the idea that James is going to present to you. He is going to remind you that the circumstances that make the trial that God intends to use to build your faith, somebody else is going to try to use those same circumstances and that same trial for a a very different agenda. He's not talking about a new thing. Here is a trial that has come upon you. Peter describes a trial in in words that are very graphic. It is a fierce, it is a fiery, it is a painful set of circumstances that exists and it is prolonged. And James says when God allows that in your life, he intends to use those circumstances to build you and he's giving you the wisdom to do it. But there's an enemy who's going to come and he's going to use those same circumstances and he's going to use them to tempt you. That's why in the book of James chapter 1, the word for trial in the first part of chapter 1 and the word for temptation in the second part of chapter 1 are the same. It's the same set of circumstances and and God is using those circumstances to build you, but Satan is going to use those circumstances to try to destroy you. He doesn't want to build your faith. He wants to damage your faith. He doesn't want to draw you close to God and close to the wisdom. He wants to turn you away from God and distance you from the wisdom. And so he's going to take the circumstances that God designed to pressure you, and to build you so that you would run to the wisdom, Satan is going to use those same circumstances to try to tempt you. And so James is now going to talk about how we can arm ourselves so that a trial does not turn into a temptation. So uh, I want to talk today about how James arms us so that triumphs or trials, rather, do not become temptations. They turn into triumphs. And there are five concepts that James has for us this morning. So let me give them to you very quickly. Number one, James starts with a strong exhortation. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The word temptation... Occurs five times in this little segment. So it's clearly where James is headed. He he's sort of said, Okay, I've talked to you about these circumstances and I've helped you to see what God is up to. This trial is intended to build you. And if you will go to the wisdom in the right way with an undivided heart, this trial will result in life. It'll bring forth life. That's verse 12. And then he turns around and he says, Now, I want to talk about those same circumstances, but I'm going to use a different concept. And five times he introduces us to the concept of temptation. So clearly he has made a shift. And then I want you to notice a practical observation about this. Whoever he's talking about is right in the middle of this trial, and it is about to become a temptation. He's right in the middle of it. The trial has come upon him. The temptation has come upon him. And the circumstances are the same. So the circumstances haven't changed. Here's an individual, and he's walking along, and he encounters a trial. And as he is in the middle of that trial, it starts to turn into a temptation. And that's what James wants you to gather. As you go through a trial and you thank God for the wisdom he's given you, be alert because that trial can turn into a temptation. Trials are, are, are how God tests our faith to reveal its true condition. Temptations test our character. If a trial tests our faith, temptation is going to test our character, and it's going to reveal the true loyalty of our heart. So that, uh, James is going to give us in this exhortation uh, a personal word. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted of God. In other words, James is going to say, here's a temptation, this trial that is, is upon you is now a temptation, and there are things that are going on you're struggling with, and there is a hidden temptation. There's like a temptation inside the temptation, and that temptation is to blame God for the temptation. In other words, Lord, if you hadn't sent me this trial, then I wouldn't be tempted And so the whole reason I'm struggling with the temptation and I'm not overcoming the temptation is because you sent me the trial, you sent me the temptation, and and, and therefore you're somehow to blame. And you would say, well, who does that? Well, the human race began with that, didn't it, in the story of Adam and Eve? God sent them a wonderful opportunity to display their love and their obedience to God in the form of a tree with fruit. And you know the story. By the end of the day, that tree, that, that wonderful opportunity that Adam and Eve had to show grateful adoration and grateful loyalty to the God who had given them everything, that tree had turned into a temptation because Satan had come and used it against them and they had fallen into sin. And then when God went looking for them to restore them and he started asking them questions, do you remember what Adam said? And it said, well, God, listen, the reason this all happened, I'm just going to tell you, I'll be up straight with you. Here's why it happened. Her. And he's talking about who? Adam. I mean, Eve. Adam's talking about Eve. Remember, do you remember what he first said about Eve? I mean, when he woke up and Eve was there, you remember what he said? Wow! That's in the Hebrew. That's literally... He sang this amazing song of praise. And you know what he's saying to God about Eve? Her. Well, who created her? God. It's a subtle blame shift. Adam's blaming Eve, but he's actually blaming God. If you hadn't created her, we wouldn't have been in this mess, and I wouldn't have had to make this choice. And then he looks at Eve, and Eve points to who? The serpent. If he hadn't made this creature, then Satan wouldn't have been able to use him to tempt me. So at the end of the day, all of this blame shifting went right back to God. And James says, when you are in the middle of this kind of a temptation, don't do that. Don't open up your mouth and use your tongue to sin in this way. He's going he's to talk a lot about the tongue in the book, and he's sort of setting you up here. He's saying, look, don't say this about God. And don't do that because it's actually a massive deception. When you say this about God, it is a massive deception. You didn't just buy into the deception of the temptation. You bought into an even bigger deception in the sense that you think God is behind all of this. It is, it is a massive deception and it is an erroneous conclusion. It's not just massively deceptive it's it's incredibly wrong. It is an erroneous conclusion. And here's why. It is, it is absolutely wrong because God cannot be tempted with evil. There is nothing in God's nature that is evil, so therefore there is nothing in him that would ever be allured by a temptation. You can throw temptation at God all day long and it will never faze him because there's nothing inside him that is ever going to desire that thing that is wrong. You have misjudged God's nature. There is nothing inside of God that would ever respond to anything that's inside a temptation. God, in essence, is untemptable now that doesn't mean that God isn't going to ever see temptation and hear temptation. It's just saying when you throw temptation at God, you can throw all the temptation you want at God and you can tempt him as long as you want and as hard as you want and as deep as you want. And he will never sin because there's nothing in him that will ever be attracted to do that. He's untemptable. And then James says it's not just a massive deception and an erroneous conclusion it's actually a wicked charge it's a wicked charge you are telling god or accusing god rather of doing what satan does you are actually accusing god of sin you you are assigning to god the very kind of motive and the very kind of action that satan does And so James says before you even get to understand how temptation works, you need to make sure that you don't think a certain way. And the only way you're not going to think that is by going back to the right wisdom that tells you about God. There is a wisdom that God gave you, and it tells you about who he is and what he's like. And when you depart from that wisdom, you have made an erroneous conclusion, all right? And that's the profound reason why we're not supposed to do this. All right, so here's the next question James says. All right, if, if temptation doesn't come from God, if the trial God sent you to build you turns into a temptation, don't say that came because of God. So if that, if temptation doesn't come from God, where does it come from? And that's the second big idea. There is a sobering explanation about how temptation works, And and it's like this, James is going to talk about the source and then he's going to talk about the course of of how temptation works. And he's going to tell us that temptation comes out of our individualized, inordinate desires. So he says it this way, each person is tempted. You and I have individual desires that are tailor-made to us. It, it, temptation, you can say it this way, temptation is a personalized experience, each person with his own desire. The word desire there, some of your Bibles would have the word lust. It's the idea of a strong craving, something that you just crave, that just rises up inside you, a compelling desire for something that is prohibited by God. It, it either desires something that God told you not to, to do or to have, or it is repulsed by something that God told you to do or to have. But in any case, temptation is a craving, a strong craving from within. So let me give you this illustration. Um, have you ever been um, in bed at night and, and you wake up and it's like two in the morning and, and everything is just right? I mean, it, it's, I, I like the room to be really cold and I like the the, the 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 blankets to be really high. And I like to burrow down in the blankets and I have the pillows just right and they're just arranged just so and you just you're just in there and all of a sudden you wake up and you're like I gotta go back to sleep, I gotta go back to sleep. But but you're thinking about something. And what you're thinking about is your fridge. <laughs> Two o'clock in the morning, it's cold out in the room, it's perfect. You're in the bed, burrowed, you're under the covers, the pillars are soft, your head's just got the perfect place. It's everything just right, and you can't stop thinking about your fridge. Because inside your fridge is this putrefying dish of liver that has been there for eight weeks, and you're hungry. And you're going, are you kidding me? Yeah, I am kidding you. That wouldn't get anybody out of bed what if it was a piece of cheesecake left over from the cheesecake factory where you went to dinner that night and it's sitting there in the fridge by itself you had your piece this is your wife's piece <laughs> your wife doesn't need that you're like I could serve my wife well <laughs> by eating that and then right next to that is a gallon of milk and it's cold and your mind starts envisioning a glass with little ice cubes in it. And you pour milk. Nobody in their right mind, no godly person drinks milk without ice. And so you put a little milk in your, in your ice, and, and it gets so cold, it's beating up on the outside. And there is this vision of milk and cheesecake. And here you are in your bed. And you're like, I need to sleep. I need to resist. And, you, and then you start dreaming of milk and cheesecake and before you know it you're sleepwalking <laughs> and off you go to the kitchen and the next thing you know you didn't just eat her piece you ate your daughter's piece and your son's piece and then you saw another big cheesecake in there that was for dinner the next week and the guests that were coming and you you just said I need to try this to make sure it's good and so by the time you see what I'm saying so what got you out of bed what dragged you out of bed Something alerts you enough to drag you out of bed. That is exactly what James says. Temptation drags you away. He uses a hunting term, right? That's the course of temptation. He uses a hunting term. And what drags you away, and remember James is talking about two paths. There's the path of wisdom from above, and there's the other path. And you're on this path, and something drags you off the path. What drags you off the path? something that alerts you, your own version of cheesecake and milk in the middle of the night. I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, it was appealing to something inside you. And that's what James talks about. We are tempted when we are lured, dragged away, that's the word for lured, it's a hunting word, and enticed, that's the idea of a fishing word, it's what you, what you put in front of a, a fish, bait, so you're dragged away when you see bait that you desire, that you crave after. And so those desires are coming from a part of us that the New Testament describes as our flesh. And we need to talk about the flesh for just a minute because the flesh is the part of you that when you got saved, it didn't get saved. The flesh is unredeemable. Remember what I said about God being untemptable? There's a part of you that's unredeemable. It is implacable in its hostility to God, and it is insatiable in its desire for things that God prohibited. And it's part of you it's not like you have two men living in you. It's not like there's a good angel and a bad angel on your shoulder and, and in whoever, whichever one you feed is gonna be the one. That's not what, what the New Testament is teaching. When you became a Christian, your old man went away and you became an entirely new man in Christ. And that's why the New Testament says, now you need to start putting off the works of the flesh. So even as a new man, there is still a part of you that is unredeemed. And that's why when you die, your body will corrupt and you're raised again. And this time when you get your new body, there's no flesh in it. This part is not there anymore. So between now and the time that God gives you a new body that doesn't have this inordinate part in it that is unredeemable, here's what we're supposed to do. What am I supposed to do with that part that constantly desires everything God told me not to do and aggressively resists everything God told me to do? What am I supposed to do with that? And Paul's answer to that is only one thing you can do. You can't corral it. You can't contain it. You, you can't try to sanctify it. It'll never be sanctified. Listen to how Paul says uh, this in, in Romans chapter 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot. So here I've got a part of me as a redeemed new man Christian. And Paul says that part of you, your flesh, will never be redeemed. It is insatiable in its desires to disregard what God has told it. And it is implacable in its hostility to God. And every time a temptation comes, it comes to that part of you. That part of you perks up and says, oh, now that would be good. And, and the things that come to arouse that part of you, John is going to describe as the lust of the flesh, the desire to experience something, the lust of the eyes, the desire to have something, the pride of life, the desire to be something. And this can even have a really good sort of outward experience. I mean, think of it this way. Um, You know, let's say that you you meet a political science major who is 24 and just graduated with a, a master's degree in political science, and he decides or she decides that one day they want to have all of the power. They want to be the most powerful person in the world. And they look around, and in the current context of the world, although you may debate it, the most powerful person that has the most amazing power Ascribed to one person is the President of the United States. And they decide, you know what? I want that. I don't care what God says, I don't care what I have to do, I want that position. I want everything that comes with that position. That's what I've set my affections on. Paul said, set your affections on things above. And I don't care what Paul said. I'm going to set my affections on that. That's what I want to do. And I'm going to do everything I can do to get that. And they start thinking, all right, now, if I ever have the opportunity to be elected, somebody's going to look and see if I paid my taxes. So you know what? I'm going to be fastidious. I am going to pay every cent of tax I owe. I'm going to make sure that every tax form I ever fill out is filled out accurately, double check, I'm going to pay every dime of taxes I owe. And they think a little more and say, you know what, Um, generally uh, there's, there's some kind of scandal and so somebody's going to start checking about what I've done and where I've been. So I'm going to be meticulously moral. I'm going to make sure that when they go looking, because I want that power, when they go looking, they're not going to find one thing in my life that's immoral. Oh, and by the way, I also know that the kind of ways to get power is to be generous. And so I'm going to take whatever money I have, and I'm going to give away large quantities of it to build hospitals and schools. And, those, and I'm going to go on all kinds of, of, of trips uh, that, that, that will, will give benevolence to others. And so here's a person, and if you're just looking at that person, everything about their life looks moral. But something in their heart is doing all of that that's immoral. And it's the lust of the flesh. It's the lust of the eyes. And it's the pride of life. And it can look remarkably correct. And James says that's the danger of a temptation. And so he gives a personal warning in verse 16. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Your flesh will never tell you the truth. Your flesh is never going to want to obey God. Even when it does things the Bible commands, it is generally doing those things because it wants something that God told it not to have where it wants to get somewhere that God told it not to go. Do not be deceived. And the word deceived there is not just mental. This is not just the idea of a serious warning. Uh, It it, it is a sobering self-revelation. It's the idea, when, 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 when James says you're deceived, it's not just that, oh, you missed it. It's the idea that you got dragged off the path. James is saying, look, this trial was sent to you by God to build your faith. And Satan came along, and by the end of the day, that trial turned into a temptation, and it dragged you off the path. You were deceived. That's the idea behind the word deceived. So, why does God send temptations into our life or trials into our life? I mean, here's the question, right? Because we're all, I'm, I'm asking it as I, as I was working through this text this week, this was a big question for me. So, God, if you know that a trial has this kind of potential, why do you send trials? Why do you send trials? James has already told us one reason. Trials mature our faith. They build our faith. But there are at least three other reasons in the Bible why God sends trials. He sends trials to confirm and affirm our faith. He did this with Abraham. In in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And you know what God said at the end of Abraham's trial in Genesis 22, 12? For now I know that you fear God. God sends trials to confirm and affirm your faith. And then God sends trials to expose what's really in our hearts, right? This is what he did with Israel in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8.2. This, this is what Moses said to Israel, you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Now, why did he do that? Why did God lead you into the wilderness? That he might humble you, that's a good thing, testing you to know what was in your heart. And what did did God want to know? Are you going to keep his commandments or not? Are you going to keep his commandments or not? And then thirdly, God uses tests to validate and vindicate the true worthiness of our character and of our faith. This is exactly what he did with Jesus when the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness and he was tested. And what came out of that test was a vindicated champion who was worthy of our salvation. In other words, he was the worthy champion that could actually accomplish God's mission to redeem us. And so James says about all of this, when you see a trial coming and you endure it and it turns into a temptation, put your hand over your mouth. And don't be deceived a second time. Don't be dragged away from the wisdom that God intends to use to help you keep on the path. And that brings us to the fourth thing, and that is this. So what does God give us that will help arm us so that trials do not become temptations? And the answer is he gives us a gift from above. He gives us a gift from above, and that's the fourth thing. There is truth from above in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And you could say it this way. James is saying as you look at verse 17, there is a perfect giver who never wanders from the truth. There is a perfect giver who never wanders from the truth. And the giver is described for you, he's named for you, as the father of something. He is the father of lights. And the idea that James is reminding you of is that this giver created the universe. He created the stars, the moon, the sun. He created the universe, and that universe wanders it changed. There is variation. Something changed about the universe that God created. Here are the lights. Here is the universe. Here is the first original creation, and it wandered away from the truth. How did it all happen? It happened because of a temptation. The entire universe was put under a curse because of a temptation and what happened at that temptation. And so James is saying the God who gives good gifts, the the God who, who, who created all of this, unlike his creation, never wanders. He never changes. He was unaffected by the curse. The first creation wandered, But the creator never wandered. So what does the creator intend to do about his wandering creation? He intends to do the very same thing with his wandering creation that James talks about in chapter 5, verse 20, when he talks about the brother who goes after the wanderer and restores him. You know what God wants to do with his wandering creation? He wants to restore it. So how in the world is God going to restore an entire creation that has wandered? And the answer is a good gift that he's going to send down from above. And that good gift is identified in the next part of James 1 as the perfect law of liberty. It's the word of truth. God sent down a good gift. It's wisdom from above. And through this word of truth, God intends to restore his creation. You say, well, Pastor Sam, I've, I've never heard that. I, 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 this is kind of new. This is the whole message of the Bible. There is a creator who created the original creation in glory and in splendor and in light. And by the time we get to the end of Genesis 3, that entire creation has wandered from God's original purpose. And it is now bound up in sin and death and darkness, and it is under a curse. And the God who never wanders is going to do something with that wandering creation. He's going to restore it. And how he's going to restore it is through a gift, a good and perfect gift that is coming down from above. And in James, that gift is the word of truth. And that's the final thing we'll see as we close this morning. There's proof of this. There's proof that this good gift that God is giving to a wandering creation is actually going to restore it. Listen to how James says it. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You know what the Father of Lights did? He started a new creation. Temptation brings forth something, it brings forth death. This word of life, this word of truth brings forth something, it brings forth life. And what it brings forth is light bearers. Because as a new creation, Paul says, you are no longer darkness, you are light. Not you were in darkness and you now are in light. You were dark and you're now light. How did that happen? This good gift that came down from above. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he said, you are the light of the world. And Jesus is putting you all over the kingdom of darkness. He is sending you everywhere. There are light bearers, part of God's new creation, who came to be light just the way you came to be light by the very word of truth, the gospel of the righteousness of God through Christ. And those lights have a mission. They are to be firstfruits. You know what a first fruit is? A first fruit is something that belongs exclusively to God and is the evidence of more to come. And the more to come isn't just that there are more people going to get saved. The more to come is the fact that this wandering creation is going to be brought back and restored. so how do we end a message like this because this isn't just your typical message on temptation this is a much bigger thing this is James giving you wisdom so that you aren't dragged off the path by a temptation so so here's how I want to end what happens if I actually got dragged off the path is there a way back What if my temptation went beyond my mind to actually my hands and my feet and my mouth? What if it actually produced the sin? And what if that sin's been going on for some time? Am I doomed to death? Is there a way to break the cycle? And the answer to that is yes, you know a story in your Old Testament, right? David and Bathsheba. And by the end of the day, David had been dragged away. From the wisdom of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel had lost his joy. And he stood there before God, and the only sentence that Moses could pass on him was death. There was no sacrifice for the sins that David committed. And somehow David got life. David deserved death, but he got life. How did that happen? Here was a man who wandered away in in gross ways. I mean, he broke every one of the Ten Commandments, including murder. And by the end of that story, instead of death, David gets life, and he doesn't just get life, he gets blessing, and he doesn't just get blessing, he gets a massive blessing called the Davidic covenant. How did that happen? And the answer is, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. And David wrote it down in two psalms in, in our Bible. He wrote it down, this wisdom that he found. He wrote it down in Psalm 51, and he wrote it down in Psalm 32. And David said this, if you confess and if you repent, there is oceans of mercy. No sin you've ever committed will exhaust even a tiny fraction Of God's mercy. That mercy is available to you. But you have to go to the wisdom to get it. And you have to go with a whole heart to God. You're saying, God, whatever, whatever you tell me, I want that mercy I'm going to do. And God says this. If we confess our sin, he is what? He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. So this morning, maybe some of you have been dragged off the path. Maybe your flesh rose up and led you down the path. And by the time you opened your eyes, you were off the path and you were on another path. And you are desperately desiring to get back on the right path. There is a way back. And it's this. Humble yourself. Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. How do I do that? I come to God and I say, God, I have sinned against you. And I acknowledge this. No excuses, no hiding. I acknowledge it. And I want to make it right with you. And I need to make it right with others if necessary, but I I want to make it right with you. And God says, if you will confess your sin, I am faithful. I never lie. I'm faithful. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you're sitting there going, well, uh, okay, there's that double-mindedness coming back up. I don't... And and James is saying to you, purify your heart, your mind. Get single-minded. Get wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting in the God who always tells you the truth and quit listening to the one who never tells you the truth, who dragged you away to start with. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power in our life. Thank you for the way this text goes far beyond just telling us three little things about temptation. It actually gives us a glimpse into the heart of a father who is creating and recreating light bearers by a good and perfect gift that has come down from above. And so, Lord, for those of us that struggle, for those of us that perhaps have been dragged off the path, help us to trust the wisdom from above. And we'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen.